Father, we come into your presence this morning with hearts that are sometimes heavy, maybe. Maybe some of our hearts are are feeling filled with joy. Maybe some of us are filled with sadness. God, whatever is on our heart this morning, we just want to open our hearts to you, the King of Kings and our best friend. And we want to ask that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would speak to us. God, we want a closer walk with you. We want to know you more than we've ever known you before. We want to love you more deeply than we've ever loved you before. And so we ask that you would speak to us this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. He was there, and as everyone looked at him, it would have seemed, and you would have thought so too if you saw him, that he should have been lonely. He should have been distraught. He should have been in complete despair. I mean, here he was, a total exile. At a stage in life when you're hoping to have a nice home on a golf course, he was in exile. He was all alone. And what did he really deserve to get to this place? I mean, but as you looked at his face, if you were to look into his eyes, you wouldn't have seen a look of despair. But instead, as you looked at his eyes, you would have seen a a glimmer of hope. You would have seen a a glimmer of of joy. You would have seen maybe a, a smile creasing his face. Though he was obviously a man who had been through much. As you looked at him, you could tell that his body was worn out. And yet you saw a peace that passes all understanding because it surpassed all of the circumstances surrounding him. And as he sat there, his mind began to go back and to think back over his life. What were the the steps that had led him to this point in time? What was the path that had led him to be here in this place all alone? And as he thought back about it, there was suddenly a moment that stuck out to him that he clung to as one of the most precious moments of his entire life. Now, I don't know about you, But since I was young, I have really valued my mom. Now, some of you guys know this, that if you're playing sports or if you're in high school, one of the worst insults that anybody possibly could give you is not usually about you, right? It's if they say something about your mom. If they have something to say about your mom you are going to have a hard time containing your anger. You may lash out at them. I was no different than that. I remember playing basketball games and just, it was okay if they would say things about me, but when they began to say things about my parents, I remember that my anger would go through the roof. I remember wanting to uh, make sure that my parents were always there for me. You you know how it is as as a young child, how much you value your mother. I remember as I got older, there was one time where I was climbing this peak in Colorado. So I was headed up this 14,000-foot peak. My mom and I got up really early to get there. We left before dark on the trailhead, 
And as we're headed up the mountain, she, she tells me, you just go ahead and go up the trail. We have walkie-talkies and it'll be just fine and I'll meet you at the top of the peak. So you sure, Mom? Are you going to be okay? She said, yeah, I'll be fine. I said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and go up. And so I began up the mountain and, and I was going as fast as I could. I was making good time. I was always hopeful that I could be the first one to the top of the peak. That was always my goal, that I could sit up there and just enjoy it before anybody else was up there. As I was headed up there, I began to, to see the, the trees clearing. We were beginning to get above the, the, the altitude where trees were. When all of a sudden, I heard this, Zach? I said, yes, Mom? Zach, I, I think I'm lost. What do you mean, Mom? There's a, there's a clear trail up this mountain. I, what do you mean you're lost? Well, I don't see a trail anymore. <laughs> Mom, that's, that's a big problem. If you don't see a trail, I know there's a trail where I am and I'm ahead of you. Well, I don't really know where I am. Okay, Mom, I'm, going, I'm, I'm coming back right now. And I turned around and I began to run down that mountain. You know that that peak no longer really mattered to me. All that mattered was my mom was lost in the woods and I love my mom. I wanted to do whatever it was to take care of my mom and I found her, thankfully. She'd just gone straight when this, the, the trail switched back, and it wasn't a big deal. She wasn't very far from the trail, and we were able to go on and, and get up that mountain. But you know how it is that you want to take good care of your mom. I know there are some of you in our community who are mourning the loss of a parent recently over the past week or months, and I know how that must, I don't know for sure, but I know that that must pain your heart. So imagine with me that moment. Imagine another person as he is condemned to die. As he is being nailed there on a cross. And as he's there in all of the agony and all of the suffering and all of the pain, as he's there on that cross, of all the things in the world that he could be thinking about, of all the things that he wanted to accomplish before he died. There was one thing that was especially pressing on his mind. Go with me to John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, we find the story of the crucifixion. Jesus was condemned. Though they saw that he was innocent, he'd been falsely accused again and again. And in John chapter 19, we find that he's there on the cross in various promises of Scripture are being fulfilled even as He's there on the cross. But then in verse 25, we pick up the story and it says this, Now therefore, there stood by the cross of Jesus His mother, His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw His mother. Now you have to understand that a, a time like this, the crucifixion, was not the place for a woman to be. She shouldn't have been there. This, this obviously shows the angst that was in the heart of these women who were there at the cross. They were desperate to see what was happening to Jesus because of their immense love for Jesus. This wasn't a time when women would just stand around and watch a man be crucified naked, brutally having been... His body mutilated. That, that wasn't a place for a woman to be. 
But as he looks down, he sees that there is his mother. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother, the disciple whom he loved, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Jesus, at the moment of his greatest agony, remembered his mom. He wanted to watch out for his mom. He wanted to make sure that she was taken care of. And then notice what it says right after that. Verse 28, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, he knew that his mom was taken care of, that these other things had taken place that were fulfilled promises of Scripture, and he knew that his work was accomplished. He had peace knowing that his mom was taken care of. But here's the thing. If you think about this, Jesus just entrusted his mother to who? Do you know who it was? John was the disciple in, in his gospel. He doesn't name himself, but he, he says the disciple whom Jesus loved or whom he loved, or you could translate it as whom Jesus was loving. John is the one who was entrusted with Jesus' mother. Now we might say, well, of course he was. Wasn't there is this close relationship with Jesus? But think about it like this. In Mark chapter 3 and verse 17, when Jesus is naming his disciples, it says that then there were James and John, sons of Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Jesus actually gave them the name sons of thunder. Now, I don't know about you, but when I picture somebody named sons of thunder, I think maybe it would be some big wrestler or something like that. A very scary looking person. I don't think that it would be somebody that I would ask to care for my mother if I was about to die. And if you think about the stories in John's life, Jesus knew all too well the type of person that John had been. If you go to Matthew chapter 20 with me, we'll find one of the first stories in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20, it says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, now, James and John were the children of Zebedee, sons of Zebedee. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him, that's Jesus, with her sons kneeling down and asking something from him. Now we get from this and also when we look over at Mark where it says basically that the sons came to Jesus, that the sons are basically hiding behind their mom right now. They have put their mom up to this. She was one of the women who was supporting Jesus, who was following Jesus, and who was helping Jesus financially. And, and they had done so much for Jesus, and Jesus had done so much for them that, that they wanted a special relationship with Jesus. And, and so they put their mom up to this, and they, they encouraged their mom to go to Jesus. And in verse 21 it says, And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. Grant that my sons would have the highest position in all of your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup 
that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. He's addressing James and John. And they said to him, yes, we are able. (laughs) So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. This is creating division within the disciples. The disciples are like, what? Why are James and John, who do they think they are anyway? Why are they trying to get special privileges in the kingdom? There was jealousy arising. There was anger arising among the disciples. They couldn't stand James and John acting like this. Jesus knew that. As He was there on the cross, He had to have remembered that at this moment when He was being glorified, James and John had actually just deserted Him the night before, and now John was back. But why entrust your mother with a person like this? If you go back to, or go forward to Luke and go to verse, chapter 9 and verse 49. Luke chapter 9 and verse 49, we find another incident in the life of John that Jesus fully knew when he decided to entrust his mother into his care. John chapter, Luke chapter 9 and verse 49, it says, Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade them because he does not follow with us. Master, we saw somebody that was doing this work for you, but they're not part of our church. They're not here with us. They're not in our fellowship. They're not sitting with us. And so we told them, you better stop acting like you know Jesus. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, Do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. John had an issue. John had a struggle with envy, a struggle with wanting to be in the highest place, a struggle with letting others have access to Jesus. Just look at verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadily, steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So at this point, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem knowing full well that he is going to the cross. Knowing that he's going to the cross, setting his face to Jerusalem, he begins to send out messengers to let people know that he's coming. In verse 52, and he sent messengers before his face and they went As they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. I believe that these two messengers were actually James and John. And as they went out, they go into this village of the Samaritans to let them know that Jesus is coming. You guys better get ready. You better prepare everything to make room for the Savior who's coming and to to provide for his needs. Verse 53, but they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. So they said, he's going to Jerusalem. We don't want anything to do with him. They let some of their prejudices in to stop them from accepting Jesus. And so the disciples go back to Jesus in verse 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Okay, I guess I can see why they were sons of thunder, right? They said, Lord, 
Just make some big thunder clouds, send a huge bolt of lightning, take out this whole village. It's kind of interesting that they were pretty close to Mount Carmel at this point. They may have even been able to see Mount Carmel off in the distance. And they may have been thinking about Elijah the prophet and how he had gone up there on Mount Carmel and how he had prayed and and God had sent fire down from heaven on that sacrifice. Or maybe they'd been thinking about the story with Elijah when the, the captain sends all of these it's groups of 50 of soldiers out to attack him. And he says, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you. And three different times, fire comes down from heaven and consumes this whole group of people. And so as they're looking and they're there in this place, they're there by Mount Carmel, they're thinking about Elijah and they think, Jesus has the same power. Jesus could right now just consume that whole village of ungrateful Samaritans. And did they have right to be upset at this point? Had Jesus been wronged? I mean, this was the king of kings that they knew was God in human flesh walking among them. And here he was. He was probably tired from his journey. For us today, you know, to to say, well, okay, we can't stop in that town. Let's stop in the next town. That's no big deal for us. But for the disciples and for Jesus, when you're walking 20 miles a day, And you have to add another 10 miles to go to the next village. And Jesus is exhausted. He's been healing people. He's been working miracles. He's been preaching. And your job is to watch out for him. Do you see why you might be a little upset? A little righteous indignation might rise up about how Jesus is being mistreated. And naturally you might feel like, well, I have the right to defend Jesus. I have the right to defend myself. I have the right at this point to do something about this. And so they said, Jesus, just call fire down from heaven and consume this village. Verse 55, I love Jesus' response. But he turned and rebuked them. (laughs) One of his strongest statements to anybody was to these two closest disciples, these sons of thunders, these close brothers, close friends of Jesus. And he said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. I love how Jesus always recognized the controversy, the great controversy that was going on in lives. I love how Jesus, when He's on the cross and He sees people that have been nailing Him to the cross, that He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. When He sees James and John saying, call fire down from heaven, He says, you don't recognize that that the way you're acting right now, the things that you're doing right now, that that you are trying to take vengeance for yourself and vengeance for me, you don't even recognize that actually this spirit is the spirit of the enemy. But Jesus doesn't just condemn them, but he says you've been deceived, you've, you've been blinded, you don't even recognize what you're doing. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Think about it in my life. How much easier it would be for me when somebody wrongs me, when something happens in my life, if I looked at that person and I said, they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea. They've been deceived. There's there's an enemy that I'm wrestling against and it's not them. Instead, there's an enemy who's deceived them and, and I have to assume the best about their motives and intentions in my life believe Jesus is telling them this. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Verse 56, 
For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So they went to another village. Jesus says, this isn't what it's about. This isn't what my kingdom's about. It's not about conquest. It's not about conquering. It's not about showing who's right and who's wrong. It's about loving this world to myself. Jesus acts not with, by forcing people into following him. But instead, he draws with cords of love. He wants for people to follow him because they love him, because they delight in who he was. And as they're headed to Jerusalem, it it had to have made an impact on John. It had to have begun to sink into him. You know what? I'm missing the point. And having been rebuked at this point, I mean, when you receive criticism from somebody, do you usually feel good about that person? Normally, your reaction is like, well, that's great, okay. Well, if I have to hang out with this person, I will, but I don't really want to talk to them much more, and we tend to immediately begin to separate from that person. But not John. Look at what happens as as they head to Jerusalem. Let's go back to John, and let's go to John chapter 13. You remember that, that John was one of those three closest disciples, He had some of the most incredible experiences where he was one of the three who was invited to come with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration. And he got to see Jesus glorified there on the Mount of Transfiguration. But here in John chapter 13, they're finally in Jerusalem. That journey that they were headed on when the Samaritans rejected Jesus and mistreated him. They're finally there and it's Passover and It's finally the Last Supper. And in that upper room experience, Jesus again manifests that love that is beyond anything that we can fathom in washing the disciples' feet. And after Jesus washes the disciples' feet and He goes back down to the table and He sits down at the table, there's a detail mentioned here that we can't pass by. You see, up until this point, we don't see a clear picture of who John is. Except for as we look at the other Gospels and we see that he's a son of thunder. That he's somebody who is calling fire down from heaven. That he's somebody who's wanting nobody else to be casting demons out in the name of Jesus if they're not a part of his clique. He's somebody who's determined to have the best place in the kingdom of heaven. But suddenly you see something different about John. In John chapter 13, in verse 23, it says, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of His disciples whom Jesus loved. This is the first time that it talks about this disciple that Jesus loved or that Jesus was loving. And look at how close He is to Jesus. This is Jesus who had rebuked Him for for just trying to defend Jesus. This is Jesus who had told him that he was of the wrong spirit. And he is there as close to Jesus as he can possibly get. It may not make much sense. You may think about it. Well, last time I was at dinner, I don't remember ever leaning up against anybody's bosom. (laughs) It doesn't make a whole lot of sense in our culture today. But back then, uh, they actually laid... uh, by, by the first century, they, they, were, they were actually laying at the table. They'd have just a little bit of a raised table. 
and you would kind of rest on your left arm and your body would be extended out like this. And it basically means that he was the one just kind of like the next person over laying pressed up right next to Jesus. It's interesting. If you look at the famous Leonardo da Vinci uh, painting, it actually has them switched as far as where they should be is when you look at who the disciples are there. But John was there at the most honored place, the right, right hand of Jesus, and he was there laying there right beside Jesus. And then look what happens. John just keeps pressing closer and closer to Jesus. Just like Jacob who clung to the ladder, the only way of salvation, who said, I won't let you go. Just like Jacob who, who clung to Jesus as he was wrestling with Jesus and said, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. Simon Peter in verse 24, therefore mentioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? You see, there's in the Greek here some, some very clear motion words of, of how he didn't just stay there and say, hey Jesus, so who is it? It's this moment of tension among the disciples as they're trying to figure out, well, somebody's going to betray Jesus. What's going to happen and, and what's going on? And in that moment of confusion, in that moment when they don't understand what's going on, they look to John and they say, John, would you ask him? And John just leans in a little closer. He presses closer to Jesus. He uses a different word for, for bosom there that he, he comes up against his chest and he just comes as close to Jesus as he can. He says, Jesus, who is it? And maybe at that point, I wonder if, if John, based on how he had handled rebukes in the past, based on how he had responded, not by separating from Jesus, but by pressing closer to Jesus, maybe at this point in time, he's actually pressing close to him wondering, Jesus, is it me? Jesus, could this be me? And maybe he's trying to, to press as close to Jesus as possible. And so he leans back against Jesus. He gets closer to Jesus and he says, Jesus, who is going to do this? From here on in the Gospel of John, there's four more times where John is named as the disciple whom Jesus loved. If you go over a few chapters with me, we just looked at one of them, but let's look at it again quickly in verse, chapter 19 and verse 26. Jesus is on the cross. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by. Here you again see that of all the disciples, John has pressed as close as possible to Jesus. A little bit earlier, we find out that in the trial in, in Pilate's uh, or with the, with the high priest, when Jesus is on trial with the high priest, John is the one who knows the high priest somehow and is able to get inside and actually follows so that he can be as close to Jesus throughout the trial. And he actually lets Peter in, and that's when the girl at the gate begins to give Peter a little bit of a hard time. John kept pressing as close to Jesus as possible. He may not have understood what was going on. He may have been filled with confusion. He may have been filled with angst about the stuff that was going on in his life. But in the midst of it, he kept pressing closer and closer to Jesus. And so when you get to the cross, here he is, a disciple of Jesus. That's a dangerous place to be standing if you're a disciple of Jesus. To be standing by the, the, the cross of, of your leader who's being crucified Obviously, the, 
the followers could just as easily experience the punishment that Jesus is experiencing. He's the only disciple that we read that is that close to the cross. And He's brought Jesus' mother there so that she can be close to her son. When Jesus therefore saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing by, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. Can you imagine for the rest of John's life what this did for him? The end of verse 27 says that from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. Can you imagine that though he didn't at first understand what happened to Jesus, he had Jesus' mom with him. And then when Jesus was resurrected and then ascended to heaven, he still had Jesus' mom with him. And every morning when he woke up and and he was there in the household and he would recognize that he had at least his Savior's mom with him. That would have had to have brought a lot of comfort to John throughout the rest of his life. Let's keep going and looking at another place where John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved in chapter 20. Chapter 20, this is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection. In verse 2, this is Mary Magdalene has gone to the tomb. She's found that it's empty and she runs back in verse 2. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, it's pretty awesome when you look through the Gospels at the close friendship that John and Peter have. Often they're portrayed as being together. And and we'll find it in Acts again that John and Peter kind of had this sort of friendship going on. But look at what is displayed about this disciple whom Jesus loved in the next verses. Verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. This is one of the most surprising verses in Scripture. Maybe not the most surprising, but think about Peter. He was the one who would immediately speak out. He's the one who would throw himself into the water. He's the one who would do anything. And yet John is desperate to get to that tomb. He wants to know what happened to Jesus. And John, in all of his zeal, manages to outrun Peter himself, that zealous disciple. John loved to be close to Jesus. He loved to press as close to Jesus as possible. He loved to be where he could see Jesus' love. Then we go on to chapter 21. Chapter 21 and verse 7, we find the story where seven disciples have gone out fishing Jesus has been resurrected, but He's not with them now. And they think about maybe going back to their old profession of fishing. And as they're out there fishing, a stranger appears on the shore and says, do you have any food? And they say, no, we haven't caught anything all night long. And then He tells them, well, try casting your net on the other side. The side that Jesus was standing on. And as they cast their net out, suddenly their nets become filled with fish a multitude of fish verse 6 says and as this is happening apparently most of the disciples don't really catch what's happening at first they're just like whoa we're catching fish this is great they're beginning to pull in the nets but verse 7 says therefore the disciple whom jesus loved said to peter it is the lord now when simon peter heard it 
You see that he didn't get it just by the fish being caught in the net. He had to hear John say, that has to be Jesus. I don't know of anybody else who would do that except for Jesus. It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. He was always jumping out. (laughs) Go on to verse 20. Again, we pick up another story where Jesus has been having a private conversation with Peter. And John just can't stay away from Jesus. In verse 20, Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following. They've been having a very private conversation. Jesus was actually revealing to Peter the manner of his death. And they were off by themselves talking. And and Peter turns around and he's like, John's following us. John just can't stay away. He can't let me have alone time with Jesus. He's always here with us. And so as he looks, it talks about who this disciple was. It continues in the verse, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper. Do you see how significant this event was for the disciples? This was a big deal. John had pressed closer and closer to Jesus. He had been open and receptive to Jesus' love like nobody else had been. And said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Verse 21, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? What's going to happen to this man? What's going to be the result for his death? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You Follow me. John loved to press close to Jesus. John loved to be loved. You see, Jesus lavished his love on every one of his disciples. But John, in a special way, opened his heart to Jesus. He was receptive to Jesus. He took the rebukes of Jesus and and rather than letting it separate him from Jesus, it led him to press closer to Jesus. It led him to embrace Jesus more. And look at the difference that it makes in John's life. After Jesus has ascended to heaven, you go to John chapter 3 and verse 1. John chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. I love how the disciples pressed together. They stuck together. They were of one mind, one spirit. They pulled together. The more that they saw of the love of Jesus, the more that they pulled together. After Pentecost, they couldn't get enough of being together. The more of the Holy Spirit they had, the more of that perfect bond of unity, of the Holy Spirit, of Jesus' love in their lives, the more that they pressed together. So when it was time for prayer, Peter and John, they went together to pray. Now as they go to pray, they encounter a beggar who they end up healing, and there's this huge thing that happens, which then leads into another sermon that... that uh, Peter preaches, and after he preaches, and then the leaders are not happy about it, he gets to end up calling before, them in before the Sanhedrin. As they testify before the Sanhedrin, in verse 13, it says this about those great leaders, those hardened criminal leaders of Jerusalem, those wealthy men who Jesus had not been able to wrinkle their feathers, had not been able to do anything in their lives to get them to go in a different direction, although he tried and tried again. Look at the impact that John had on them. Verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John 
and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. You see, everything changed with John because he pressed close to Jesus. Because he wanted to experience as much of Jesus' love as possible. He wanted to be right there with Jesus. I remember back in 2005, when I first met Leah and we began working together on this ministry team, it was a bit unfair because she and my mom were the best of friends. And so my mom would actually call her on the phone and say, yeah, Zach said this and this about you. He said you're really beautiful and that he would really like to date a girl like you or something along those lines. That's not fair for a guy. I had no idea what she's thinking, but my mom was telling her everything that I was thinking. But I'll tell you what began to clue me in. I remember as we'd work together that we would go into our staff meeting and, and we would meet there in this office and there would be this, these chairs there and I would think, wow, it would be kind of nice to sit next to Leah. She's really beautiful. She's really smart. And I, I would kind of like to get to know her better. And I would find that it was the most natural thing in the world that we would sit right next to each other. Somehow we always managed to be in the same chairs together. When we'd go out to lunch with the whole team, we always managed up on the same side of the table sitting right next to each other. And then I began to observe that it wasn't just me who was excited about this, but she kept coming to sit next to me, and I thought, well, just maybe she likes me too. Because my mom wasn't informing me of what she was thinking because she wasn't telling my mom. She's a smart lady. There's something about being together. I remember not long after that, I used to go on these long walks with Leah, and suddenly it was so fun for me to go on a walk, when before I thought, walk? I'm a teenager. Who would want to walk? I'm in my early 20s. I, I need to go for a run. I need to go climb a mountain. Who would go for a walk? But when you have somebody there that you want to be with, there's something special about it. And for John whose heart was enraptured with the love of Jesus. He pressed closer and closer to Jesus. And he was able to take rebukes because he loved Jesus. And he had spent a lot of time in Jesus' presence. He'd pressed close to Jesus. And in my walk with Jesus, I discovered that the closer I press to Jesus, the more willing I am to hear the rebukes of Scripture that that let me know, you know this part of your life? That's got to go. And as I read it, I realize this is coming from the loving creator of the universe who knows everything about my life and who loves me infinitely. And so when he's telling me that I'm of the wrong spirit when I'm doing this, then obviously, I better stop. Though it doesn't make sense to me, I love Jesus. And I love his word and I want to accept it. When I receive counsel from from leaders in the church and they begin to, to tell me things about This is something you could do a little better rather than reacting against it when I have drawn close to them and I've drawn close to Jesus. Then I'll appreciate that in a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. And I'll go and evaluate in my own life, Lord, what is it about me? What is it that I am missing here? Would you please reveal to me what it is that I need to do? The closer we press to Jesus, the more of that incredible love that we will have. After all, it was Jesus who at that very meal where John was reclining on his breast, in John 13.35, he said, By this, 
The world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As you have that love for me, as you have that love for each other, that's what the world needs to see more than anything else. It's the love that you display. I love how it describes the love that John experienced and how it transformed him in the book Acts of the Apostles. Page 544, it says, Above all his companions, John yielded himself to the power of that wondrous life. He yielded himself to Jesus and he was transformed by Jesus. It was John's deep love for Christ which led him always to desire to be close by his side. It was because he loved him that he wanted to be the one who was right there next to him, that he wanted to be as close to him as possible. The Savior loved all the twelve, But John's was the most receptive spirit. He was younger than the others. And with more of the child's confiding trust, he opened his heart to Jesus. Thus he came more into sympathy with Christ. And through him, the Savior's deepest spiritual teaching was communicated to the people. Have you read the Gospel of John? Have you read 1 John, 2 John, 3 John? Have you witnessed how drenched those books are with the love of God? Have you seen the depth in these books as they reveal the character of God? These are beautiful revelations of Jesus. And it's not without cause that John was able to write a book like that. He opened himself up to the Holy Spirit more than any of the disciples did. He allowed the love of Christ to impact his heart more than anybody else did. And because of that, he was able to reveal the depths of the love of God. Acts of the Apostles, page 539 says, The confiding love and unselfish devotion manifested in the life and character of John present lessons of untold value to the Christian church. Wait a second. Unselfish love? Wasn't he the one calling fire down from heaven? Wasn't he the one that were wondering why Jesus was willing to entrust his mother to him? Just look at 1 John chapter 3, I believe it is. 1 John, one of the last books of the Bible. A letter written by John. Chapter 3 and verse 16. An easy one to remember because John 3.16 is also a famous verse that is quite similar. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love. This is how we understand love. And this is coming from the disciple whom Jesus loved. The one who opened himself up to the love of Jesus more than anybody else ever had. By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Then he goes on to give practical insights to say, hey, if you say you have love and you see your brother who's lacking in what he needs and you don't help him, then you don't really have love. And he goes on to give all these practical tips and ideas about how to practically love. Jesus radically transformed John by the power of love. And this is vital for us to understand as individual Christians and as a church. We can take amazing lessons from this. We can learn so much from studying the life of John. Acts of the Apostles, page 559, says, Such transformation of character as is seen in the life of John is ever the result of communion with Christ. 
as we commune with Christ, as we, like Jacob, focus on that ladder, which alone is the way of salvation, as we cling to Jesus in prayer, as we go to Jesus in Scripture, as we spend time with Him in His Word, all of that time in communion is a value in our life. It works a transformation in us. And it leads us to be more and more like Jesus, just like John was. And I want this in my life. I need this in my life. I've witnessed how unlike Jesus I can be. I remember when I was a sophomore in college, I was attending an Adventist university in Southern California. One day I was at a, a park and I was parked in my car that I treasured so much at that point in time. It was a, a Jetta VR6. It was my nicest possession at the time. I was sitting there in the parking lot and as I sat there, I was just looking around the park when I noticed that some other teenagers were throwing a Frisbee around. And the Frisbee kept coming closer and closer to my car and I kept thinking, well, I sure hope that they don't hit my car, my nice black car, my nice shiny black car that's my nicest possession. I hope that they don't hit it with this Frisbee. But pretty soon there was Frisbee skidding right under my car and they come running over and grab it and just act like it was nothing and throw it over my car again. And pretty soon, they're basically playing catch with their Frisbee over my car. And it nicks my car. And I say, hey guys, do you mind stopping doing the Frisbee around my car? They're like, oh, our bad, our bad, okay. They move a little ways away, but somehow they manage to throw it straight at my car after that. And it hits the side of the car. This happened time and time again. And I began to realize that they're purposefully antagonizing me. And so I got out of the car And I let them have it with words that a pastor would not use. I was totally unconverted at this point in my life. I let them know that this was totally inappropriate. They better leave my car alone and they better leave this park. And I was about to get back in my car when one of the young men came up to me and he said, Hey, you go to school around here? I like, yeah, I do. Where do you go to school? Oh, well, it's such and such Adventist University. Adventist University, really? I know the Adventists. I, I used to go to school there, and I can't tell you how embarrassed I was at that moment in time to have had anything to do with the Seventh-day Adventist church. As he looked at me and he realized, oh, you're a Seventh-day Adventist. I know about you people, and now I know a lot more about you people. You're the ones that cussed me out because I threw a Frisbee near your car. Not having love is egregious in the Christian walk because it misrepresents the name of Jesus. If I claim to be a Christian and I mistreat somebody, that misrepresents not just me, but it misrepresents Jesus because I said I'm a follower of Jesus. If, if I am cheating somebody, if I am being mean to somebody, whatever I'm doing to somebody that is not Christ-like, It misrepresents the character of Jesus. And as a church family, we've got to watch out for each other. We've got to love each other. We've got to press together. And so I invite you, if you ever see me acting in a way that is not loving, would you please come to me and talk to me about it? And I invite you not to go tell other people, well, you were acting in this way and it was unloving. But I invite you to make the same invitation to people around you. Say, would you let me know when the things in my life, the actions that I'm doing are unloving, would you come to me and let me know 
because I just want to be more like Jesus. There's nothing more important than that. There's nothing more important than becoming like Jesus. You know, as you look through the book of Acts, at first they were so close, they were pressing together, they had so much love. But something began to happen in the church, and we know this because John wrote these letters at the end of the first century. Now, John was the one who lived the longest. You remember how Jesus said that you both will drink of the cup? Well, sure enough, in about 44 AD, James was put to death by, uh, I think it was Herod. He was put to death, and then John, the disciple, went on to live for years and years and years. And it didn't look like he was going to die a martyr's death. In fact, they had this rumor that somehow he was going to be still alive when Jesus came back. But we find that suddenly towards the end of his life, he's writing these letters exhorting the church to just the practical, basic nature of what they should do as disciples of Jesus and how they need to love each other. In Acts of the Apostles, Page 548, it says this, that though they were one mind before, though they they were all pressing together, though they were experiencing love before, it says, but gradually a change came. The believers began to look for defects in others, dwelling upon mistakes, giving place to unkind criticism. They lost sight of the Savior and of His love. When we fix our eyes on the problems of other people, rather than fixing them on Jesus, rather than clinging to the latter, it begins to corrupt us. It begins to make us like what we're looking at. They lost sight of the Savior and of His love, and they became more strict in regard to outward ceremonies, more particular about the theory rather than the practice of the faith. In their zeal to condemn others, they overlooked their own errors. It's all too easy to miss the plank in our own eye when we're trying to take the speck out of somebody else's eye. They lost the brotherly love that Christ had enjoined and saddest of all, they were unconscious of their loss. They did not realize the happiness and joy that were going out of their lives and that having shut the love of God out of their hearts, they would soon walk in darkness. And it goes on to describe how it was at this moment in time that John writes this letter of 1 John. And if you open up to 1 John chapter 1, you see how John, even though this is later in his life, he's still enraptured by the love of Jesus. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness. We've seen it with our own eyes. We've handled it with our own hands. We've come close to it. And we declare to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which was, we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. said, I want your joy to be full. I want you to realize that though we are removed by about 60 years from Christ dying at the cross, that we can continue to have fellowship with Jesus. We can continue to press close to Jesus. Even in the times that we're living in, we can press close to Jesus. And this will make your joy full. 
Then he goes on in chapter 3 and verse 1 to say, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. We read chapter 3 and verse 16, but jump over to chapter 4 and verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God. And God in him. Do you want to abide in God? Do you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? John says the key to that is abiding in love. Treating people with love. Loving the world around you and loving God with all your heart. Verse 17 continues, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love Him because He first loved us. John is saying, church, this is the way back. This is what we have to do. We've got to come together. We've got to press together. We've got to love each other. We've got to remember the love of Christ and let that love saturate our lives. Let that love fill our lives. And we will love because He first loved us. John was probably the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And there's a beautiful letters Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. But as he began to circulate this letter to the churches, Christianity was beginning to be persecuted. And it didn't go over well that he had a way of describing Christ that was so beautiful, so wonderful, so lovely, that the pagans were turning to Jesus. And because of this, the emperor began to hunt down John. And before long, Christian tradition tells us, and the book of Acts of the Apostle tells us, that John faced what looked like would be a martyr's death. The emperor decided that he would fix this heretic who was denying the, the gods of, 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 of the empire and that he would boil, make this, this cauldron of boiling oil. You imagine facing the thought of being plunged into a cauldron of boiling oil? That would be incredibly painful. In the book Acts, of the Apostles, page 570, it says John was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil. Christian tradition also talks about this. But the Lord preserved the life of His faithful servant. He, he was cast into it, but even as He preserved the three Hebrews in the fiery furnace, John was preserved in the midst of this boiling oil. As the words were spoken, thus perish all who believe in that deceiver Jesus Christ of Nazareth, they pronounced this ultimatum over John. John declared, he speaks back from the cauldron of oil, my master patiently submitted to all that Satan and his angels could devise to humiliate and torture him. He gave his life to save the world. I am honored in being permitted to suffer for his sake. I am a weak, sinful man. Christ was holy, harmless, undefiled. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. John, in the midst of a cauldron of boiling oil, had perfect peace. He had perfect surrender because he had saturated his life with the love of Jesus. He had yielded his life to the love of Jesus. He had opened himself to the love of Jesus. And so in closing, look at Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, we find that old man sitting on the Isle of Patmos. The last of the disciples to still be living. 
exiled because they can't kill him in the, the oil anymore. It didn't work, so they, they've put him on this barren island, this desolate island that's just rocks and sea is all that he can see. And on this island, John writes this. Verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. John is writing from one of the worst places on earth saying, grace and peace to you. May God bless you. If you go on down to verse 9, it says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Christ Jesus was on the island that is called Patmos for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, probably for writing First, first John. I was in a spirit on the Lord's day. You see, John knew about the Holy Spirit. If you read the Gospel of John, there's more about the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John than any of the other Gospels. He understood that Jesus said, when, when I go away, it's to your advantage that I go away because if I don't go away, then I won't send the Comforter to be with you to fill you with all that my personal presence did and more. But John is in the Spirit. John is pressing close to Jesus. John is not just reclining up against the breast of his Savior anymore, but now John is actually in the Spirit and the Spirit is in him. Jesus is there with John on the Isle of Patmos and everything's okay for John because John is with Jesus. John is pressing close to Jesus. John's heart is open to Jesus. And then Jesus shows up in verse 11. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. And then Jesus goes on to reveal one of the most beautiful revelations of His character in all of Scripture. And He sends His angel to signify so many beautiful things that were going to take place in the future and to, to send warning to the church throughout out history. God was able to show up in John's life because John had opened his heart to the love of Jesus. Friends, do you want to have that kind of relationship with Jesus. John opens up his letter in 1 John chapter 1 and says, this is written so that you too could have this fellowship. This isn't just for the Apostle John whom Jesus loved, but it's for you. This is for me. God wants for us to experience the love of Jesus in the same way that John experienced it. And how do we do that? We do it by pressing close to Jesus. We do it by focusing on Jesus and, and not on the faults of others. We do it by meditating on the character of God as revealed throughout Scripture. We do it by taking time to be in the Spirit, to pray, to press close to Jesus, to cling to Jesus and to ask that He would not go until He bless us, just like Jacob. I want to open myself up to the love of Jesus. And I want for our church to open our hearts more widely than ever before to the love of Jesus. There's never been a time like now when it's crucial for us to allow the Spirit to fill us. R Romans chapter 5 and verse 5 tells us that hope does not disappoint. I don't know what you're hoping for in your life, but whatever hope that God has given you, that hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in your hearts through the Holy Spirit. In closing, I just want to ask, will you commit to asking Jesus to reveal His love to you this week? 
to recapture your heart with his love, to fill you with the Holy Spirit so that you can have more of that love. If that's your desire, I want to just invite you um, to just bow your heads in prayer with me. As you bow your heads in prayer, I just want to invite you too to consider taking time, especially this week, to meditate on the book of 1 John, to just read it and reread it. There is so much depth revealing the love of Jesus there. Father, we come before you, having made commitments to desire to see more of your love revealed in our hearts and lives. Lord, we long to have the same peace that the disciple John had there on the Isle of Patmos, having gone through all that he'd gone through. Lord, we long to have the same transformation of character in our lives that that we could go from being sons of thunder to being the disciple whom you loved. God, we ask that your love would transform our hearts today too. That you would transform our hearts, that you transform our church, that you transform this world through a revelation of your loving character. Father, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us? Would you give us the heart of Jacob to not let you go until you give us this blessing that you've promised us. We want fellowship with Jesus and we won't let you go until you bless us with a more intimate fellowship. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.